Bonded Oil Company, which was started by a man named Paul Deere in Springfield, Ohio, and became Speedway Super America. Among the million jobs I had along the way is uh, a pump gas for bonded oil. And I had my uniform and uh, was attentive. That was back before self-serve gas stations. And uh, when I would put my shirt on, my name and bonded oil emblem, I always had to wear a badge. And everybody wore the badge. And on the badge, it was red, white letters. I can still see it in my mind's eye said, pleasing you pleases me. And it was a part of a culture that they were trying to develop and an attitude and a disposition that they were trying to cultivate that the employees had toward the patrons uh, who came in for gas. I thought of that badge this week as I studied Romans 15, 1 through 6, which is our next paragraph as we walk through this wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these followers of Jesus in Rome, because really at its heart, it's God calling us to live in consideration of others such that a motto like pleasing you pleases me. But actually, and Paul's going to get right to it in verse 3, this is a page out of Jesus' playbook on how to live. As a church, this passage will ask us, how much are we really driven by a yearning to please others? The Christian life can be boiled down actually, substantially, to equip. Uh, thrown out to my dad and I as, and I've, I think I've told you this story before, forgive me, but it, 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 it'll help us get to the meat of Romans 15.3. Dad and I, before he died, once in a while we'd play in a golf tournament. We played in this two-day golf tournament at Cedarville University. It was in September, often a hot day. We, it was a long round, tons of people on the course. And so by the end, everybody was hungry, and we go to this big meal, and it was a great meal. And you walked in, and it started out both sides. It it was this layered-up shrimp cocktail bar, and that was how you started to walk in before the last station was, you know, they lop a steak on your plate, and, you know, you went to the banquet. It it was great. Well, Dad and I, you know, we we didn't have any lunch. We were out there six-hour round. We run to get a shower, go to the dinner real quick. We get inside. Are you kidding? Look at this shrimp bar. So we're starting to take the shrimp bar down. And a professor who uh, loves dad and me and made a good friend of uh, us, uh, he comes walking in, and, and uh, I can still hear his voice. Uh, we're there, and all the men are just getting, uh, you know, from the golf tournament, they're getting this shrimp, and they're just piling it up on their plates. And it may have been that we had an undue amount of shrimp cocktail on our plate. But anyway, uh, he, he yells out in front of everybody, Jack, there are others! Everybody just bust out laughing because he was suggesting that as we were indulging ourselves at the shrimp bar, we were not considering other people who were yet to come in and go through the shrimp bar. Jack, there are others. I'm studying this passage. I listened to Alan offer that quip and I had to laugh this week. But I thought if you are to summarize this life that God has called us to in following Jesus in one quip, It would be this, 
there are others and you need to live considering the others that are there. And isn't that the life that Jesus has called us to? And when we do that, in consideration of each other, there is a unity and an affection. The group is brought together in a bond that will not quit. That's Romans 15, 1 through 6. May I read you the next paragraph in the English Standard Version? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. The passage before us this morning will probe just how very much, or not, we appraise the pleasure of our neighbor and just how deeply we really are interested in unity and a God-glorifying disposition toward each other. Now, in chapter 14, which is where we have been the last two messages in this grand letter in the New Testament, he talks about our need to defer to each other and be careful separating over the various convictions that we develop about how to live. Now, he, while not restating everything he said in chapter 14, puts a bow on that package in these verses. That's what he's doing in the early verses of verse 15. So he's going to put a bow on the package. And he's going to ask us, as he puts the bow on, how deeply committed we are to subliminating our desires for the purpose of staying unified together as a God-glorifying church. Now, of course, some churches are famous not for being unified together in a God-glorifying one-voiceness, but they are famous for division and rancor. And I'm of this person, and I'm of that person, and separation. We're all along. We are called to consider the fact that there are others, and we live accordingly. That's the heart of what is here. Let us hear the word of the Lord this morning. I want to go two different directions. Number one, I want to talk about how the life that Jesus has invited us to is a unique and a distinctive life. To follow Jesus 
is a unique way to live. It's a glorious way to live. It's a different way to live. And let's talk about that. Secondly, then, it's hard, so how do we do it? And there are two habits that he identifies in this passage that's going to keep us going. Isn't it true that we all need some good habits to keep us going in the right direction as we follow Jesus? So let's look at it together. Number one, in following Jesus, we have been called to a life that is distinctly different. Look no further than verse 3, which I've already read to you. These five words define the life of Jesus, frame what we are called to, and I ask you, how easy is this or how difficult? Here are the five words. Christ did not please himself. Who are we? Oh, you, Eric, I'll tell you who we are. We are followers of Jesus. Remember the first invitation in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 4, 19. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. If we are following Jesus, where are we going? What does that look like? It looks something like this. Christ did not please himself. And those who follow Jesus are not given to a life consumed with pleasing ourselves. Now, there's two instructions at the core of following Jesus that are here. Number one, followers of Jesus live with a sense of obligation toward others. Followers of Jesus live with a sense of obligation toward others. Notice that word that he uses. Now, we live in an age that doesn't appreciate the notion of obligation. We are into expressive individualism and freedom at esoteric heights that are framed in such a way as, what do you mean obligation? I'm free. I have no obligation. You open the word of God, and the way to life is a way sensitive to our obligations. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again, here he summarizes Romans chapter 14. He synthesizes everything that's there. The strong in conviction, the mature in understanding the true nature of righteousness are to be sensitive, not to run roughshod over the tender of conscience, the underdeveloped, those who are still coming to understand the true nature of righteousness. We are not in arrogance or swagger to smash and run over the weaker brother or sister who's still developing biblical roots and conviction. The strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. Now, it's a twofold obligation that's framed here. Number one, bear the failings. Love bears all things. I was in the car with my father before I was married, knowing that some of his peers had faced the sadness of divorce in their marriage. And I said, Dad, I've got to ask you a question. It might seem odd. Andy and I are getting ready to be married. Why? Haven't you and mom got a divorce? Oh, he said, that's that's easy. I can tell you in one word. And I said, really? 
He said, yeah, toleration. And then we both just laughed and went down the road. And then when we finished laughing, I thought about it. I thought, now I know. My dad knew more about love than I ever imagined. I never conceived of him as a great lover. Because a part of loving is bearing all things, is it not? And a part of loving my brother and loving my neighbor, including my brother and neighbor, who is not as developed in conscience has different convictions tonight. I, I, I love them and I don't run roughshod over where they are. This is a part of our obligations. But then the second part of the obligation is bearing with the failings, but it's also not pleasing ourselves. Right in the margin, practice self-denial. Please note, this is a different kind of life. We're not into self-denial we're into self-aggrandizement. We're into self-fulfillment. We're into being all we can be and finding our dreams. This is a different kind of life that we've been called to, a Jesus kind of life. What Jared read well this morning, in fact, he, he even inflected uh, the, the, the terms as he read in a way that was sweet if you were listening closely, uh, highly exalted. Uh, that high exaltation came after great humility. He humbled himself, serving others, not considering himself most or first, or what Tim Keller would say, a, a, a self-forgetfulness that not only is thinking less of ourselves, but not thinking of ourselves altogether. I find myself many times by default terminally thinking of myself first and thinking of arranging it most and this is that's the life of adam i haven't been called to follow adam i've been called to follow jesus who thinks of others first again back to the quip there are others and we can serve them and love them followers of jesus live with a sense of obligation toward others. Now, just stop there and ask, you know, on the radar screen of my conscience, do I at all consider my obligation to other people? If that's beyond us, let us become awakened to that as a part of a strategy to live. Secondly, the second instructions, we are driven to please our neighbors for their good. Look at verses Two and three. Command number one in a passage is strive to please our neighbor. It's in verse two. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This striving to please is the notion behind the verb. That's not easy. I'm glad, although it doesn't show up in the English Standard Version's translation of the verb, I'm glad that notion is in the original because it helps us understand how hard this is. This is not easy. Uh, crucifying ourselves. I mean, Good Friday wasn't easy for Jesus. And we're following Jesus. And this is the life that he's invited us to. Strive to please your neighbor. It's not easy stuff. Now, verse 3 explains why. For the reason why we strive to please our neighbor is because we're following Jesus, and here's the five words again, Christ did not please himself. And then to reinforce this notion, he gets a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 68.10, noting that when he came, it wasn't to please himself. 
It was actually to please his father. Remember he said, my meat is to do the will of God. It is my pleasure to do what God has asked me to do, and I'm doing it. But in doing it, he wasn't thinking of himself. He was actually thinking of us because he took our reproaches upon himself at the cross so that Good Friday represented not Christ dying for his sin. He was sinlessly perfect, but he came on a mission to die for ours so that the obstruction between us and God, and we couldn't relate to him because of our sin, was then and is removed as we receive Jesus Christ into our life and have our sins forgiven. And that way of relating to God is then opened up. The door could not be more open. Indeed, Christ, he said, I am the door. And the door's been opened in Jesus Christ to relate to the living God. And if you're here this morning, on this cold morning, we'd remember it together. Eric, remember that, that cold Sunday morning in January in 2024? Yeah, I remember that Sunday. And wouldn't it be great to remember it as your day of beginning with Jesus Christ? Have you ever recognized your sin has created reproach between you and God? And all of us in thought or word or deed have sinned and been separated from God who is holy as a result of our sin. But that's not the end of the story. Christmas, God came running after us. Good Friday, he sacrificed himself and took our hell so that we could be given as a gift his righteousness. And that's all we have to offer God is our deserving judgment because of our sin. But he offers us, in the person of his Son, eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never begun with Jesus, why not begin this morning? And you can begin by simply, earnestly, from your soul, disposing yourself to our Lord in attitude, spirit, and word. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mercy is what we get from God that keeps us from what we deserve. I deserve hell, and God in Christ gave me his mercy. God gave me his favor in his grace, and what we get in Jesus, John 1:16, is grace upon grace. I invite you to Jesus Christ this morning. Now, there's a twofold purpose that drives this relatedness to our neighbor. We are acting toward him, not considering him or her first for his or her good. Verse 2. The result is we build them up. So our relating is either for another person's good and for their building up or for their bad and for their tearing down. How would our relating change if every word or every gesture or every email or every text or everything we sent out had a preamble question of, is this for their good? Will this build them up? The formula from chapter 14 could be summarized like this. I gave up pleasing myself for the good of my neighbor and building them up. And the result of that is a God-glorifying unity broke out. That's these verses. Selflessness is like thick lubrication between the machinating gears of our personalities that come together. 
long as there's enough grease there, it'll be smooth and it'll go well. And you get this gear considering how I can encourage that gear and thinking of that gear first. You get this wife and this husband thinking, how can I win the contest of deferring to you most and best? That's the greatest kind of fight you can have in a marriage and the greatest kind of contest. And when that goes on, it's sweet relating. The same way in churches. And that's what this passage is calling us to. Oh, you say, Eric, that's unrealistic. Who does that? Well, Jesus does that. That's what drove him. And he invites us to be driven in the same way. And the great irony is that in pleasing others and considering them first, we come to a joy that we don't experience when we are all out there pinging to look out for number one and driven by a yearning to please ourselves. And with Mick Jagger, if you go that route, we just can't get no satisfaction. We can't get there. Uh, I find it super ironic. But we lived, uh, uh, oh, about a mile and a half from the Cotton Bowl. And when we were in seminary, uh, big high-priced tickets, uh, for, um, oh, I can't, Mick Jagger's band. The Rolling Stones, of course. Um, the big, they had a concert at the Cotton Bowl. I mean, people came from everywhere and just filled it out. And the tickets were real expensive, but we, we didn't even have to buy tickets. We were a mile and a half away. We could hear it real clearly. I mean, it was just amazing. And um, it's just so fascinating because um, Jagger gets out there. You know, what is he, about 80 years old now? And, 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 you know, that invariably that, that uh, crash of the guitar routine takes off. And um, he starts singing, I can't get no satisfaction. And the place comes unglued. Everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. And they're just going crazy. And it's the affirmation of, you're right. And you have, you know, 70,000 dissatisfied people recognizing with each other in the moment how dissatisfied they are. When you think of yourself most and first, it's super dissatisfying. And the irony and counterintuitive matter is in following Jesus and putting others before ourselves, we come to a joy that can't be experienced unless you go that way. And it's the very way that God invites us to live. He wants our good all along and preserves it in following our sweet Savior. The lie is that the way to happiness is to serve yourself and think of yourself first and most. Jesus said a long time ago when he was here in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that joy is known to those who follow Jesus. Well, we're called to this Jesus kind of life. It's wonderful and hard simultaneously. And all of us, when we hear it, it's like, are you, are you kidding me? Really? How do I do this? What resources? How do we pull this off? There are two disciplines that keep us living for Jesus. They're in verses 4, 5, and 6. This passage takes a turn now to explain just how this, to keep this life before us. What keeps this life we've been called to, to follow Jesus, before us 
with an animated motivation that keeps us going in faithfulness. Two things. Look at verse 4. The Word of God instructs us and encourages us on to a hope-filled life of the imitation of Jesus. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now there's a super strong affirmation that's here in 15.4. Clearly he says that the Bible was written in past times and it had a purpose for the people of God in those times and in that moment, but that there's a timelessness and a transculturalness to the word of God and that that word written in former times speaks into our lives today and now and offers encouragement, yes, to us in this good way, following Jesus. And in a disciplined way, notice he uses, interesting, he's going to repeat it, endurance and encouragement, verse 4, verse 5, these two words show up again. We'll talk about them when we get there. Endurance and encouragement. In a disciplined way, we keep going, we persevere, we stick to the stuff, we endure through the strength that comes to us, through the encouragement that comes to us from the Scriptures as we give ourselves to reading and asking God as we read, give us grace to obey and to realize what is here. I love Augustine's prayer. I think of it often. Oh God, demand what you will. And we open the word of God and we read something as challenging as Christ did not please himself. We are his followers. We're called to that and we say, wow. But God gives grace to help and Augustine prayed, Lord, demand what you will. Follow Jesus with a selfless life. But then Augustine said, provide what you demand. <laughs> I need help to pull that off. I'm not going to get there unless you help me. And it's the systematic exposure to the encouragement of the scriptures that help us. But it has to be the systematic exposure. Let's say you're a physical therapist and you see a patient after surgery. You know, they, 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 they make us hurt as they take us through the discipline. And they say, all right, now look, if you do these exercises seven times a day in the next week, we will see progress. And you'll come back and you'll be in a better place than you were today. And you go home and you say, that hurt. And I didn't like how I felt when I did what they asked me to do. So, hey, I'm not at the physical therapist's office now. I'm at home. And uh, I'm not going to do that. And so for seven days, you can do none of the exercises. And you come in stiff as a board, not very much progress. It's just as if you had surgery yesterday. You made no progress in the physical therapist bounds over there in, in, in just effervescent, positive happiness. And she's so good and so capable. Hey, how'd you do this week? Oh, you know, did okay. Well, uh, you, you, you look like you're, you had a little bit of a setback. Um, you know, you're not moving very well. Um, how'd the exercise treat you? And you get real quiet. And finally, you have to give it up. I, I didn't do any. You didn't do any. How are you going to get better? In the same way, 
Um, it's nice to have the Bible. You say, oh, I'll tell you what, Eric, we have more Bibles in our homes than any place in the world. We're really good. It you can have a million Bibles at your home if you do not read it with it open before an honest heart crying out to God for help to live it out. It's no good to have a Bible in your house so that we are only encouraged as we systematically give ourselves to here. The encouragement of the scriptures. Now, did you know what kind of encouragement it is? It's, it's robust. Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you think about the one commodity that keeps us going in life, isn't it true that it is hope? And if your hope tank is running at low ebb, it's good that we meet on the first day of the week because for 2,000 years, the church has met on the first day of the week. You know why? To celebrate the fact that on that first Easter morning, the tomb was empty. And that is the only durable rumor of hope amidst a landscape full of widespread despair in our broken world. The tomb is empty. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. We serve a risen Savior in whose hands are all authority and power. And we have hope. All you say, Eric, I'm, I, I'm facing a hard week. Eric, I'm, I'm facing a threat. Eric... One of us may die this week. If we know Jesus Christ as Savior, that will have no effect on the endurance of our hope. In fact, our hope will just be realized. But to be constantly reminded of this brings us to a sustained hope that keeps us going. That's the end result. The encouragement brings us to an end the end of hope. The Bible brings hope to us. Death doesn't get the last word. Suffering is not eternal. Suffering is not aimless and without purpose. God is in the midst of the stuff we face, and he's helping us forward. The word of God instructs us and encourages us on to a hope-filled life of the imitation of Jesus. But secondly, it's a life of prayer moves us to God-glorifying relations. Eric, I, I, I want to relate better in my marriage. Great. Where do I start? Well, here's a place. Get on your knees and ask God to help you be unified in a way you've never been. Well, Eric, how will we ever get there? Well, how about this? Consider her needs above your needs first and most. And you do that, and she starts considering his needs above her own, and she's praying, that is a recipe for God to raise up a very strong, unified marriage that is God-glorifying. The same as a church. Did you note that the, there's a prayer here? He, he starts praying, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, our harmony with each other is a cousin to the accord, the harmony that we share with Jesus Christ. And because we live in union with him, we can live in union with each other. 
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the end result is a God-glorifying life, a God-glorifying marriage, a God-glorifying church. Why does it glorify God? Because they're getting on. You see, isn't it amazing to think the thought that in the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have never had a cross word between them. There's never been any rancor or division or malice or offense. It's been eternal, sweet relatedness together in perfect love. Amen. And then you get to Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God. The Father loving the Son who's responding to the Father and the Spirit all together. And so we are God-glorifying when we look like the Trinity in our marriages, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods, on our ball teams, in our church. In our church. And that's what he's praying for. And isn't this a page out of Jesus' prayer in John 17? Do you remember Jesus praying there? Oh, Lord, I pray that they would be one just as we are one. Now, let's get back to the two times he uses the word endurance and encouragement. He talks about the, uh, in relation to the scriptures, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. By the way, isn't it interesting that hope emerges through endurance? not apart from endurance. We all want hope, but we're less drawn to endurance. Uh, we want God to take the fire away from us, not to take us through the fire. And so, but notice the scriptures give encouragement for endurance through and the realization of the encouragement of hope. That, that's an interesting juxtaposition of those two together. But then he calls it the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that um, God is enduring? Well, certainly God is enduringly faithful. Uh, if you're eternal, uh, endurance is a part of uh, your character, is it not? Uh, but what he's saying is he's speaking to the source of endurance. He's speaking to the source of encouragement, that God himself is the fountain of endurance. You know, the most intrepid endurers who just keep going and going and going and going and finish the race in faithfulness, that can be blamed on not their heroism, but their knowledge of God's storehouse of endurance. That, that the old gospel song, uh, He Giveth More Grace, when you have exhausted the store of your endurance. Maybe you're there this morning, you say, Eric, my storehouses are empty. <laughs> I'm I, I don't have any more energy to put to this. What he's saying is, and he's praying for this, that God has infinite fountains of endurance available to us. And it's not 
our heroism. It's his sufficiency. And it's, it's, it's not like a well that runs dry. It's perpetual. A store of endurance. Does anyone need a store of endurance? That's what we get in the sufficiency of our Lord. A store of encouragement. I mean, unending encouragement that is ceaseless. Does anybody with me need encouraged this morning? I'm glad you're here. That's what we get in the sufficiency of our Lord, in the glory of the Scriptures. And that's what Paul's driving home. But we are not to soak these. These come to us, endurance. You know what? To get along with some people, you know what we need? Storehouses of endurance. Now, by the way, I don't want them to put on my tombstone, difficult person. You know, that, that, that's the epitaph, you know. Extra grace required. Don't be, I mean, if you're that, you need to repent. But it is true, as our gears come together and we're around each other, we need grace and endurance to get on with each other. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. And it's available. It's sourced in God. And these resources make it possible for us to come together, live in unity, and glorify our Lord. That's the end of all this. May the God of endurance and encouragement, the God who is the eternal source of infinite endurance and encouragement, grant you to live in such harmony with each other in accord with Christ Jesus. That, what's the end? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eric, what makes for a God-glorifying church? A God-glorifying church is full of people with God-glorifying relationships that cover faults with love and are quick to forgiveness and pour grace on everything and live in unity. Now, this is a prayer. It is, you've heard the phrase, you know, that, that guy couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, here's a phrase. You cannot at the same time be praying for God-glorifying unity and be so upset at a sister or brother for something that they've done that you won't let go of it and it separates you from them and you hope you don't run into them in an aisle or you look where they're seating and sitting someplace else. No, no, we, we are God-glorifying when we are living in accord with Jesus Christ, drawing from the wellsprings of those encouragements, drawing from the wellsprings of that endurance, and living together in unity in a God-glorifying life. How do we get there? We don't please ourselves, but we please each other. Grant to live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus. That's verse 5. Paul's praying for unity. It's interesting that... Uh, the this apostles in Acts 6, 4 said, look, it's very important that we do not neglect the word of God and prayer. 
churches that are unified and stay together and love each other through the faults that we all have. I lead the lig in them. Our church is given to the encouragement of the scriptures that bring us unto hope and prayer for God-glorifying unity. In a former generation, we used to sing a little chorus. In our church, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In our church, Lord, be glorified today. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what he's driving at. And he tells us how to get there. And isn't that the summing prayer that we want for this good place? Oh, Father, in our church, glorify yourself through the unity that we share, the endurance we draw from your infinite wells, and the infinite encouragements that are found in living in accord with you in reading your good book, which nurtures our soul. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and reign over us and bring glory to yourself in this good place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.